Hey there, guys. Welcome to Outdoors Podcast. If this is your first time listening to an episode and you enjoy it, do me a favor. Don't keep that to yourself. Tell somebody about it. Help me spread the word about this brand to the wide reaches of the internet and uh, your friends, your family. Just tell somebody about it, all right? I appreciate you. Uh, I want to eventually hear that people all over the world are listening to this show. I mean, there are some folks outside of the United States that are, but it's really cool when I see a new country pop up of someone that uh, has listened to an episode. So uh, give me a give me a shout and uh, tell somebody you know. So coming up over the next month, I have episodes coming out with my good buddy and general manager of T. Hargrove Fly Fishing Shop here in St. Louis, Missouri, uh, Craig Stevens. Uh, it's a really great conversation. I really enjoyed it. We had a blast talking about fly fishing and running a store and all that kind of thing. Um, after that, I also do an interview with Sarah and I's wedding photographer, Allie Boundy. Sarah and I are getting married in just a little over two months, and we are uh, really pumped about our photographer. We, we talk, Allie and I talk about all things photography and travel, cameras, business ownership, all kinds of stuff. It was a great conversation. Uh, and then after that, I have an episode coming out with a new friend, a woman by the name of Jessica Ryder. Jessica is on a mission to change the RV industry for weekend warriors and to have more presence for women. She's a really fantastic woman, and it was a great interview. I'm excited to finally have this much content coming out on a regular basis with this many incredible people, so uh, keep an eye out for that. So, All right, on this episode, uh, one of my favorite conversations to date, quite honestly, with my buddy Purist on the fly from Instagram. Uh, Purist is a meme-slash-comedy account with a real bent on ethics, conservation, uh, proper fish handling techniques, a bunch of stuff. We have a great talk about his background in the sport, how he started the channel, where he gets his inspiration from, and what he's ultimately trying to accomplish with the channel. We talk about tailing gloves and sustainable harvest, the dangers of fishing reds, and how he interacts with micro-influencers that are setting bad examples for the next generation of anglers. Uh, I really enjoyed this conversation, and I think it's a really good look into uh, who this individual is and what he's crusading for. I think it's all kind of really good stuff, um, so a really good deep dive into kind of where he's coming from. So looking forward to the conversation. Without further ado, let's jump right in. We're slightly above everybody else on the intellectual <laughs> scale, I think. Altitude sickness is no joke. Once it gets below zero, it's cold. There are a lot less sportsmen now than there were, say, 20 years ago. You're actually, you were used as a pawn okay. in our game to figure out what it was that we were doing wrong. You know, at that point, we didn't have one great tent. Like, we had one good tent one not good tent. <laughs> yeah. Wind was just whipping. Uh, there was, like, snow BBs <laughs> just, like, pelting the face. <laughs> All right. We are live with Purist on the Fly. Sir, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks, AJ. It's a pleasure being here. Yeah, man. Really, really happy to have you. So we found each other basically through Instagram, just, I think, you know, finding your posts uh, on online. Uh, you know, anybody that gets into fly fishing, one of the things that you end up finding is there's all kinds of accounts. I mean, fly fishing, I hate to say is a lifestyle, but it certainly has that feel to it. And whenever you get into that, uh, the, the industry, you start finding all these accounts and, you know, there's all kinds of different angles on it. And I found yours, some crazy, hilarious content, started following you. We started chatting back and forth. Turns out that we actually kind of have some mutual friends around the country. Uh, so we started kind of talking and I wanted to kind of get you on the podcast and talk about your channel. So uh, talk to me a little bit about where your background in fly fishing comes from. How'd you get into the sport and uh, why are you so passionate about it? 
Yeah. So I grew up in Pennsylvania. I grew up, uh, fishing all around state college and kind of those areas. Uh, we had a cabin, uh, not too far away from there as well as South central Pennsylvania. So I originally started out like most people, conventional guy, fishing, you know, spinners, worms, power bait, marshmallows, whatever. And then, uh, my neighbors at the time, uh, they owned a private stretch of trout stream in Pennsylvania, you know, shame on me for bagging on private water guys. But that's why I learned, you know, um, so we basically started, or I started going with, um, the neighbor boy who was my good friend. So we would go up there. We'd like, you know, play in the water, stuff like that. And as we got older, we started like, Hey, his dad fly fished. Everyone else around us fly fishing. So we started to learn. They had some really easy water, private water, just stupid, easy fish and kind of, uh, grew my love from there throughout high school. I didn't really fly fish at all in high school. I went from there to, you know, bass fishing really is what I did a lot of. And then when I came out to college out West in Idaho, I picked fly fishing back up because I'm in one of the best states to fly fish in. So why not? So I've been out here now for almost eight years and I've been fishing ever since. So, so basically going to college there, you fell in love with it, decided you didn't want to go back home to the East coast, stayed there in the West did fly fishing inform a big part of that choice or was it just kind of the people, the landscape, or was it, was it largely fishing? It, a lot of it was fishing. Uh, there's just back in Pennsylvania, we don't have anything like the, what's out here. We have a few things like the Latorte, kind of like that. It's not a very good fish or not as good of a fishery as it was when I was growing up, according to everyone I talked to from back there. Um, but we have, we have stuff like that out here, but we have big Western water that I, we have maybe two of those in all of Pennsylvania um, that I can pick off off the top of my head that I fish personally. And yeah, it was a big, big decision out here. I was like, Hey, I'm putting my roots down out here. I've got a solid job. There's no reason for me to go back. The fishing is so good out here. The money, and the money's good for jobs and stuff like that. So I was like, Hey, let's, let's stick out here. And fly fishing probably I would say is like 75% of the reason I stayed out here. Cause I don't think I would enjoy it nearly as much back East because I don't enjoy it as much when I go home to see my parents and fish there. Yeah. And I mean, one of the things that, you know, as I've kind of said on the, the podcast a number of times, you know, my fiance, Sarah and I are planning on this Western journey across the United States. And as you know, our plan started, we were originally kind of just really focused on Oregon and that's where we're going to end up. And then all of a sudden Washington state kind of started creeping into the idea. And then we've spent a lot of time in Colorado. So that was kind of always high on the list. And then the more and more I've researched, the more and more I've got into fly fishing, the more and more Idaho just keeps kind of creeping onto the list as a really solid opportunity. And then I saw a video the other day that said Idaho has 1.8 million residents in the whole state, which is bonkers to me because St. Louis, where I'm from, has 3.5 million people in our city, like in the, the you know, West County and the, the kind of area surrounding St. Louis. So I was thinking like their whole state has half the number of people that live in this city. That's pretty fantastic. That's got to afford some really good fishery opportunities, you know, immediately surrounding Boise. Like how far out do you typically travel? I you know don't burn any rivers or streams or any special places, but like, you know, how far out do you normally travel for, you know, a day or a weekend of fishing or is it all relatively tight to Boise? So in Boise in particular, I mean, you can go fish the Boise river in town. That's not a secret. That's published in every single magazine. That I know every single outdoor life, you know, fly fishing magazine. Like, oh, Boise is the fly fishing Mecca of the world because you can fish literally five. Like I can drive five minutes down the street and be on the river on and have a chance at 20 inch fish. Wow. Are there very many left in there? No, not really. It's, it's pretty overfished. 
but on a normal weekend, a day trip, I'll drive an hour and a half to two and a half hours. And then for a weekend trip, I have a little spot. Um, I've mentioned to you off air. I won't say it here because I, I do not want that place to get blown up. Uh, it's about three and a half hours away and it's in the middle of nowhere. Um, it's progressively gotten more people in it here in the last couple of years. And I think that's just because people are kind of hearing about it. Some of the shops are, you know, letting it out. Hey, it's up there yeah. and things like that. So we've been, I've been, my girlfriend and I, and my friends and I, we've been kind of exploring a little bit more across Idaho and there's so many places that like, there's not a single report on it. No one knows there's fish there. You can just jump in and at this, uh, but equally at the same time, there's been a lot of, you know, struggle on that. I've went to a lot of rivers that are like, Hey, it looks great on Google earth. You get there and there's, there's nothing there. It's yeah. gone. There's just, it's just devoid of fish or I just suck at fishing, which is also a very good chance. There's, there's the potential for both. Uh, you yeah. know, one of the things that I'm always kind of curious about because I'm guilty of this myself is like, I'll go out and, you know, shoot uh, YouTube videos or, you know, make photos for uh, the podcast or for the website or whatever. And I've come home and like edited them up and then I get them all ready and I put them up in, you know, my iPhoto account and like, all, you know, the guy that I was fishing with, I send him a few of the photos and like a shared album. And then like two days later, I'll go back and look at that in iPhoto and I'll be like, oh, snap, those are all geotagged. Hope he didn't share those with anybody and send him a text message like, hey, man, all those things. I forgot to turn off location. Every single one of those has like the exact spot that we were standing in. If you're sending them somewhere, please make sure you like remove that information. And I don't know that he has, you know, he's a smart guy, but I don't know that like that's in his wheelhouse to be like, oh yeah, I'll go take off that geotagged information. Um, and he very well could have sent it to several of his fishing buddies. And then all of a sudden, what do you know? That spot's burned. So I'm curious, like, you know, how much of that is intentional and just people being assholes and idiots and how much of it is just like, oh, I totally forgot that my phone was telling people exactly where I was. Right. So I think whenever it's that, most people don't think of that. Let's be honest. I don't think of that very often. I don't have my geotagging on at all for my phone, really. Especially when I'm out in the wilderness, I don't really, I don't even use my phone. I don't take a ton of pictures unless I catch something really special. Most of the time, I actually leave my phone in the car. Right. Uh, unless I'm out in the middle of nowhere where I need like emergency services or something like that in case something were to happen. Um, but yeah, I would say like most people do it accidentally. There's, there's a few people out there who there's certain bodies of water that are not well known. A few here in Idaho where people will geotag a certain location and it brings them followers because like, Oh, there's other people that fish that, you know, maybe they weren't out there that day or maybe there aren't very many of them out there that fish that. Um, but next thing you know, everyone sees it. Like if I tag, if I tag the Boise river in town, no one cares. No big deal. No one, no one gives a shit. If I, if I, if I tag silver Creek and catch Idaho, no one gives a shit, you know, but like there are certain rivers, like, uh, even ones that are somewhat popular out here, I don't geotag those because right. I, I don't want more pressure on those rivers. And, you know, I love to see new anglers out there, but at the same time, you know, I don't want to be the one who gives away my secret spot. You know, sure. I have, I have a few spots like on very popular rivers, people overlook them and I've pulled out some of the biggest fish I've ever caught on a river in yeah. those spots. So, you know, I don't want to give those spots away. People know who I am out here. Um, so it, 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 it's kind of like a double edged sword. I got invited by a park recently to do opening day uh, of trout season. I mean, it's, you know, one of our four trout parks in Missouri on opening day. It's a, a slaughter fest. I mean, it's just a ton of stockers getting pulled out of the river. And I'd never been to an opening day before, so I wanted to see what it was about. And I went down and I had a good time. And the park opens at like 530 in the morning. And I was filming at, I don't know, 525. And I talked to this guy and he's like, man, I thought this park opened at 530 on opening day. And I was like, yeah, I think, I think that's the deal. And he's like, well, I showed up at 530 
And my spot was already filled up with people. And I was like, dude, you're at a trout park on opening day. You don't own any spot here. Like, this is going to be wall-to-wall, shoulder-to-shoulder craziness. If you're talking about a spot, you've got the wrong idea on a day like today. <laughs> like, come on, man. So I understand where you're coming from. For sure, for sure. I was like, come on, man. This is not your spot. But if you've got that really special place on a really seldomly, you know, traffic stream and you know that that's productive and you've been successful there, I completely understand where you're coming from. So, you know, I want to kind of transition from there into your account, right? So obviously the name Purist on the Fly, let's talk a little bit about that, right? Because I think that indicates a little bit about what you're about, right? I mean, I think you're really into kind of the purity of the sport, chasing wild fish, I would imagine. So talk to me a little bit about where the name came from and where was, what was kind of the impetus that started the account? Yeah. So I'll go from the beginning. So yeah, the reason I started the account was because quite frankly, I was bored during COVID. I was extremely bored just like everyone else in COVID. Um, uh, a lot of things were shut down. We couldn't really move around in Idaho. It was hard to fish. I miss fishing. So I was like, you know, FFBI at the time had gone away. They had been in a, you know, Instagram jail, whatever they were doing. Uh, and I was like, well, you know, I'm funny, you know, I can make some memes. Like it's not that hard. Like I was like, Oh, you know what I'll do? I'll call out people too. Because you know what my idea originally was if I can correct one person, you know, doing something wrong and they learn from it, that means I did, you know, more than I could do just sitting on the river, you know? So to me, that was like a huge thing was, you know, having my heart in the right place. It's still not about the followers to me. It's nice. It's cool. Um, but the original, the name purist on fly, because people always assume I'm like a dry fly purist, which I'm not, um, I fish dries as much as I can, but rarely do I get the chance to fish dries all day, except in the summers out here on certain, certain bodies of water. Um, you know, I nymph, I streamer, I do everything. I, I do a little bit of, uh, Two hand, not a ton. I suck at it. Don't ask me advice on it. I don't know how to do it very well, but I don't teach anyone. Um, but yeah, the original person I thought of when I thought of this account was this, this old guy I fished with on a certain river out here named Dave. And he was the first dude I ever met. who's a bamboo rod, oh. silk, silk line and only fish dry flies. Whoa. And he outfished my ass hard no every single joke. day I fished him. I haven't seen him now in four or five years. I don't know if anything happened to him. You know, I still think about him all the time. So, you know, um, he's a great dude. You know, he has the crazy mustache, you know, wears the crazy hats. You know, he has like the little, the little chest box, like the tin one where oh, it like kind of the Joe goes out. Like, that flips out. Yes. Yeah. No yeah. He joke. has like one of those and he drives a Prius, which I thought was the most hilarious thing in the world. Um, <laughs> But he was like awesome dude. And I kind of thought like, man, you know, it'd be funny to like assume the identity of someone like that. Cause and when we would talk, he had some of the most interesting ideas, whether it's like about spots and like, he'd be like, Oh yeah, I used to fish this river 20 years ago. I'd see two people on a good, on a bad day. Yeah. Now I see 40 people. And that's just, that's a normal day out yeah. here. And that was kind of like the identity I kind of assumed. And I had some other people throw in some stuff, you know, I had friends that would make memes too, or give me ideas and we'd turn them into something. And then, you know, they, they'd go from where they are. And then eventually it turned into like, you know, not only making memes, but trying to educate as much as possible. And that, that's kind of like the route I'm trying to take the account now is do more, um, more educational stuff. Like we saw, Yesterday, I posted about the the influencer article that came out um, by Angling Trade Media, which I thought was a very interesting article. I don't agree with some of the things they said, but it's still a good read. It's yeah. it, it's important, especially the fly fishing industry, to not be too 
insulated and to be not stuck at echo chamber. You only think one thing, you know, you only hear one thing and you only think one thing. So it's always good to hear everyone's opinion, regardless of how, you know, people think I'm bigoted or hard headed, you know, in my views of fly fishing, if someone proves me wrong, I'm first one to admit that I'm wrong. Right. Like I, I have no problem with that. I'm totally confident in what I believe. I feel like I've done the research, but I've had people prove me wrong on multiple occasions. So, and I'm okay with that. It, yeah. it doesn't bother me. I challenge anyone. If you're like, man, I really hate what he just posted. You know, I think that's wrong. Let me know. Let's talk about it. I got no, I got no problems, you know, having a cordial conversation about it. Yeah. Now, if you're going to come at me and cuss at me and call me all kinds of names, I probably won't talk. But, yeah. Going to come yeah. back hard. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, as, as the account got started, did you start it all on your own? Did you have friends that were contributing? Were, were member, like were the people that follow you bringing you content? Like where was all the content coming from when you first got started? So the original content was going through the hashtags on Instagram between my friends and I, um, they kind of just sent me everything. And then it eventually came in like, Oh, someone else was helping me out, had access to account. And then they were like, Hey man, I, this isn't for me. Like I got too much going on. You have all these conversations with all these people and stuff. Like, it's just kind of weird for me to be on here. So, okay, cool. And you know, that those, some of those individuals still send me stuff, um, occasionally not very often anymore. It's mostly a one man show nowadays. Um, but yeah, a lot of it originally was perusing that, um, you know, taking inspiration from like what I had remembered from FFBI. Wizards of Fly Fishing was still around. So, you know, I, I would take inspiration from them. And then my biggest thing was not copying what other people were already doing. So like if FFBI covered something, you know, maybe I'd post on my story or they posted a meme. This is later on too, um, sure. when they came back. Uh, I would, you know, say something and, you know, maybe say something, but I wouldn't make a meme that's directly correlated to that. Right. So that was kind of my thing is trying to be original and like, you know, this is going down a whole nother rabbit hole, but a lot of these meme accounts are popping up nowadays. And it's like, man, it's the same recycled shit. Yeah. I, I'm just like, cool. Like, so, so yeah, I mean, that's one of the things that I think is, is difficult. And you know, what you and I have had some conversations kind of offline about is when you get into it, when you're new, it's so hard to see the difference between someone that knows what the hell they're talking about and somebody that's clout chasing someone that's, you know, uh, you know, using their body to kind of sell who they are or whatever it is, draw attention. I've seen plenty of photos where I'm like, why are you wearing what you're wearing right now? This is not about fishing. Let's be honest. Um, and so, you know, and both on girls and guys side, like I've seen dudes, you know, like I, you know, I guess maybe the, the like super hardcore redneck, you know, the like, guys wearing short jean cutoffs and like an American flag shirt, you know, maybe that was, I, I guess that I thought that was funny a long time ago. Now I'm like, hey, you know, you're 40 something years old, man. Like get over it. Um, so, you know, kind of on both sides, like, uh, you know, I think we've used the term whoring out the industry for, for cloud or attention. How does somebody that's new see through the garbage and find the stuff that's, that's real and find the people that they should be following? Or does it just take time? takes a lot of time. Uh, at first I'll be honest, like whenever I first got on the Instagram, you know, I wasn't about fly fishing, you know, on my personal level, you know, I was about looking at my friends and things like that. And then, you know, eventually, you know, start posting fishing pictures and I get all these people, you know, funneled to me like, Oh, look, uh, this person, you know, you know, catches big fish or, you know, that girl is very attractive. She catches a lot of fish. She looks like a really good fly fisherman and things like that. And then you kind of see, um, the, the fakeness kind of brings itself to, um, the surface. And what happens is I think for a lot of people is they follow a lot of these people, they support what they do, you know, all positivity and things like that. 
And then you kind of get to see through kind of like the face they're putting on. You're kind of saying like, Hmm, this person, you know, same background 10 times. I wonder why it's the same fish. You know, it looks like the same fish. Huh? That person changed their jacket three times. looks like the same fish. You know, you see stuff like that and you're like, Oh, like that makes you think. Um, and then eventually I think people will start going down the rabbit hole of like meme accounts and seeing and people who will call out others on what they're doing and what is unethical and what they think is like you said, whoring out the industry. You'll see that all the time. And eventually you get to the point where you're like, okay, I can, I can call a spade a spade. You know, it doesn't look like that doesn't look like it's real, you yeah. know? And I think a lot like of people a quacks like a duck, right? Yeah. And I think a lot of people struggle with that at first. I know I did. Uh, I think I'm lucky that I'm on a big enough platform now that I have new anglers come up to me and message me all the time. Like, Hey dude, I'm so glad you do what you do because had you not said that I would have totally not seen through that. I've seen that, per- that, that person change coats, you know, three times to the same fish, you know, Oh, they, they held the fish up one side and they just switched it. So you can see the other side and it looks like they got two of the two fish. They're huge, but it was really just the same fish. They took off hundred pictures of right. things like that. And uh, I think that eventually those people will get rooted out or excuse me, weeded out. Um, but some of them will stick around as we've seen from some of them. Uh, I won't say names, but I mean, you can, you can figure out if you follow the account long enough who I'm yeah. not a fan of. And who no, I'm a fan yeah. of. I mean, I think it's important, right? Because like everybody's going to go through their own journey in being an outdoorsman or a conservationist or, or an angler or a fisherman or whatever you want to call us. Um, and you know, I got my start in fishing by going trout fishing at a trout park with treble hooks and dough bait on, you know, Shakespeare spinning rods with my father-in-law or future father-in-law, Doug. And it was this incredible experience and we're limiting out, you know, pulling four or five fish out by eight 30 in the morning. And then we're, you know, cleaning those fish on the side of the bank and we're grilling them for dinner. And I'm sitting there going like, man, this is the best, coolest, full experience. Like I get the full life cycle of my food and this is really cool. And then I started getting into a little bit of fly fishing and I'm hanging out at the shop. And then all of a sudden I hear some guy go like, yeah, and this guy's got a stringer full of fish, this asshole. And I'm like, but I'm a guy with a stringer full of fish. Am I doing something wrong? And I started to kind of have some real reservations about like, am I doing something wrong by ever killing a fish by ever taking a fish out of the water. And I've come to like my own conclusions on it two years in, and I'm sure those will continue to evolve. But I think it's important for people to hear other people's perspectives and to see some science and some evidence. And, you know, uh, our buddy um, once told me like, Hey, you know, I, I don't, I don't eat my business partners. Uh, you know, and I was like, man, that's such a great way of thinking about it because, you know, he's a, a pro guide. And I started immediately th- started thinking about like, man, if I'm going to be in this industry and if I'm going to like promote the whole thing and try and get people into it, I really need to have a focus on conservation and preaching best practices and learning best practices. So it's completely shifted my mindset. Like I don't want to eat trout anymore. I do on occasion. I, you know, my girlfriend and I still go back and where my fiance and I go back and forth on it. Cause she loves it. Um, and she's a good conservationist too, but like, I've definitely evolved in just two, two and a half years. So like, I appreciate that you have an, you know, an understanding, like not everybody starts in the same place. Like, you know, even you didn't, um, but it's, it is important that we don't just idly sit by and watch somebody do something that we know is wrong. Uh, you know, a a good buddy of mine, Ed was just, uh, he was on episode, I think 11 or 12 of the podcast. Um, you know, we were, I saw him on Facebook making a comment to someone that had a fish laid out on the gravel in their net. 
And they're like, look at this great fish. Hashtag catch and release. And we're like, man, you don't need to pull that fish onto the gravel to take a photo of it, to have an experience with it. And so, you know, that person may have been, they may have grown up with their parents dragging every fish out of the water onto the gravel and then taking it and throwing it back in the water. They don't know any different. So it is important that we have those conversations and like initiate that, you know, dialogue to say like, hey, there's a better way to do this. And so kind of along those lines, I know you have a couple of crusades that you really are on. So I want to make sure we focus on that. So tailing gloves and then obviously fishing reds. But let's start with tailing gloves. Where did this absolute hatred and uh, belief that all tailing gloves are, are terrible? And I, I agree with you. Like I'm, I'm on your side. Uh, where did that come from? And like, what's really kind of fueled that, uh, that passion? I saw, it's funny. I was on Reddit one day of all places. You know, I like to browse Reddit. People will see me on there occasionally in the fly fishing subreddit. Um, and I saw a picture of this dude holding like a 16 inch brown child, the tailing glove. And I was just like, why, why do you need that? And then eventually got to the point where I'm like, okay, I want to do research on this. Like why, why are people using this? And it turned into me going down a big scientific rabbit hole of going through Penn State's educational stuff, keep fish wet, you know, looking, I forget what the, um, the one website that does a really good article on cotton tailing gloves and things like that. And I basically was like, okay, the reason people use tailing gloves is to remove the slime coat so they can hold the fish easier. Yeah. I'm like, okay, that, okay. That makes sense. Like if you're going to go, like if you're a commercial fisherman in Alaska and you're bonking every salmon you get, that makes sense. But if you're catching and releasing fish and you're actively removing what is effectively the, the immune system of a trout for no reason other than hold it, that's pretty sad and like pretty bad. And I mean, people are always like, Oh, the reason they use them on steelhead so much is because they're so hard to hold and things like that. And I'm like, dude, I've held steelhead, never had problems really, you know, holding them by the tail you know, cradling them, taking my picture, dropping it back in, takes 15 seconds. Yeah. You know, not even that sometimes. And to me, it was like one of those things. And I'm like, there, there are exceptions to the rule. I will say that if you're elderly, totally get it. If you're a little kid, totally get it. That, that another thing I will never make fun of like a little kid for doing something like that. It's just not, they're going to learn eventually. Someone's right. going to call them out. Parents, something like that. It's not my place to teach your kid. Yeah. Um, if you're a teenager, if you're like a eight, 17, 18 year old kid, I don't really consider your kid at that point, but you know, you kind of get what I mean. But whenever you're like a little kid, you're elder, disabled disabilities, I'm totally okay with that. Um, I'll be honest. I accidentally called out a guy not too long ago. I found out his brother was mentally handicapped. And that was the reason I was like, dude, I'm so sorry. I did not know that. I wish, you know, I knew that I feel awful. You know, I'm so sorry, dude. And cool I don't think he, does. Yeah, I don't think he got that message because he was still mad. I get it. it's his brother, and I, I did something. You know, I was ill-informed. You know, sure. in most cases, when you see a grown man who is, you know, holding fish, you assume that there's nothing wrong there. So, or not nothing wrong, but he's not. You know, yeah. it doesn't have a disability or something like that. So, you know, there are there are applications. But if you're like if you're like me or you're like you, and you have a 20-inch fish and you have to use a tailing glove, I'm going to ask you to reevaluate what you're doing. And that, that to me was like a big thing. I was just like, dude, like, come on. Well, and also like, like, I guess the question becomes, what's the most important part of you catching that fish is the most important part of you catching that fish, making sure that you have a photo at all costs and that you've been able to do what you want with the fish or is the number one priority aside from understanding that we are grabbing them with a hook and pulling them, you know, 30, 50 feet through the water. 
that at the end of that struggle, we want to treat them with the utmost respect that we possibly can. And if there's a way that we can maximize our interaction with that fish and make sure that it's as healthy as possible when we return it to the water, let's do that, right? Exactly. And the, the thing is, too, like you don't need a hero shot to remember a fish. There are so many cool ways you look at like keep fish wet. You look at guys, salt guys like Yako Lucas, you look at freshwater guys, you know, I, I, there's so many of them out there. You're like, Oh dude, these guys take amazing shots of fish of fish. They barely have them out of the water. You know, maybe they, they have them out for a little bit, put them back in, or they get this awesome underwater shot, which is like something I want to personally try to do, which is it, it's expensive. If yeah. I have, I have a brand new iPhone because of it. So, um, I think those are super, super cool pictures. And you know, it, if you're on the river and the reason you're on the river is to get as many likes as you possibly can, I think you're in for the wrong reasons. And that is not as it's made very clear on my account and anything I'll say, that's not what fly fishing is about. Like at the end of the day, if you're on there to, for someone to witness you go do something else. Yeah. I, I don't want to see that. Like no, no one wants to see that. I'll, I take it back. Some guys want to see a girl in a bikini holding a huge striper, you know, and things like that. But for in trout fishing, man, like we don't like, yeah. We don't need that, dude. Everyone, everyone catches, I shouldn't say everyone. A lot of people catch 18 to 20 inch fish. You know, very few people get to touch 30. Um, but you know, it's cool that, you know, you want to take a picture and everything, but at the end of the day, you just put that fish through hell. Yeah. Like at least, at least respect the fact, if you, especially if you're going to release it, you know, give it the courtesy. Yeah. My, my feeling has always been like, I mean, I will be the first person to admit that I'm into fly fishing for some of the reasons that aren't even fly fishing. I love the, the sense of community. And I'm really lucky that we've got a shop here in town that I've just fallen in love with T Hargrove, big shout out to you guys. Um, Tom and Craig and, and everybody there has done just an incredibly good job making me feel very welcome as a noob angler that knows nothing about what I'm doing. And none of my questions ever get met with any kind of criticism. They're always just met with an open arm. Uh, I went fishing with some guys from there this last weekend, and I was absolutely just Bill Dance trout setting on dry flies because I'm just, I don't know what I'm doing yet that well. And he was like, dude, just stack men that way out there. And I was like, oh, what the hell is a stack men? And he didn't go like, what are you talking about? He was just like, oh, you do this, do you shake it out there. So it's always been this really inviting, welcoming community for me, which has been a big part of why I've been into it. Second of all, I'm a gear dork. And if you are into gear, fly fishing is your sport because it's infinitely customizable. There's a million different options and you can really uh, tweak it and kind of dial it in for you and the way that you fish and the way you, you know, do things. Uh, thirdly is kind of the fishing part of it. And I think what really attracts me to that part of it is the landscapes it takes me to, right? Is the beautiful places, rivers and, and streams and, and canyons and places that I would never otherwise go if I weren't trying to catch fish. And if we don't do what we have to do to make sure that there's always going to be fish there and that they are, thriving and surviving and spawning and doing what they need to do, then we're not going to have the reason to go to those places and to go and explore those landscapes. So, you know, I've really come a long way in just two years of like really trying to understand what is the best care that we can do for the fish. Uh, like what, you know, similar to what you said, I was just at a, a youth teaching event and the kids obviously want the awesome hero shot. We were at a, a private, you know, uh, piece of water where they had really high success rate. So it was very easy for them to get what they wanted. We weren't putting a bunch of wild fish in, you know, great peril by trying to get a little bit longer shots than normal. 
But we also heard pretty much every one of the volunteers while we were there saying like, hey, let's try and get these fish back into the water as quickly as we can, making sure everybody was getting their hands wet before they did anything handling. So, you know, while giving them a little bit of what they wanted, they were making sure that they were learning along the way. So, you know, is it, do you think that the the tailing gloves, is it a cultural thing? Is it geographically located or is it kind of spread out and, you know, just kind of all over the place? I see it the most on the East Coast, definitely kind of like where I grew up, up in uh, Pulaski, New York is where you see it a lot up in those uh, Great Lakes rainbows areas. Yeah. That might that might make some people mad by me saying that, but those those Great Lake rainbows, uh, people people tangle those bad boys all the time. And it's, you don't see it nearly as much out on the out West in the Pacific Northwest. I, I rarely, I should say I rarely, I occasionally see it, you know, but then again, I'm, people always send me that stuff. So maybe I'm just being bombed with it so much. I think maybe it's a bigger problem than what it is on the West coast. Um, but yeah, for the most part, like, uh, it, it's mostly, I would say East coast guys, like you'll see certain brands that really promote their guides using tailing gloves. You'll see companies. Um, a lot of it, I would say it's definitely, and this might, I don't mean this to sound pretentious, but it's a lot of uh, conventional guys who use them. Uh, you'll see occasional fly fishing guys who use them. Um, definitely not as much, but it's a lot more gear guys, uh, that use it. And when I, I just want to go back to, to the, like when you're talking about harvesting fish, I know you talked about earlier and things like that. Sorry, this was just bugging me, no, but sure. was, there's nothing wrong with sustainable harvest. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with taking two fish home with you to eat. But it, the problem is whenever you get a guy going out there, the same hole, and this happens in Boise all the time, you got a guy at the same hole, take his limit of fish every time. Take his fish, you know, he'll do it four months. And, you know, eventually that, that spot gets fished out. And the guys who were just catching early fish notice, oh, there's no more fish here anymore. I've, I have so many spots on the Boise River that are just like that, um, where I'm like, wow, I used to catch so many fish here. And then, you know, every other time I'd go there, I see a dude walk out with a string full of fish, you know. You know, it, it's, in your, it's in their right to take those yeah. fish and everything. I don't mean to to say that, oh, they shouldn't be allowed to do that. But there is, there is a consciousness that you need to have whenever you're sustaining, when you're harvesting fish, they're like, Hey, you know, if I take five fish out of here every day, you know, there might be a problem or, you know, three times a week, you know, there might be a problem. And, but at the same time, you know, I'm all for complete harvesting of brook trout in Idaho because they're such an invasive species. So it's like a, it's a, a, it's a double-edged sword in, in a sense, because what you have is you have these people who, who really want to eat fish and they really like rainbow trout person, not big trout. I'll take a trout every once in a while. Sure. Um, if it's a brook trout, you know, I'll fry one up at the campfire. I don't care. You know, not a huge fan of it, but, um, these guys who are taking all these fish. It's just like, dude, like, come on, you gotta, you gotta think about your neighbor, you yeah. know, and think about like, you know, Hey, that guy wants to come out here and fish too. Maybe instead of taking five fish, let's just take two today. You know, yeah. I only want two today. You know, I'm going to be out here tomorrow. What's the point of, you know, taking five and then freezing three and then coming out and doing the same thing tomorrow. But to me, that, that doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's yeah. one of the things that I do. Well, some of my friends that are hunters, one of the things that I do really appreciate is, you know, some of them will get more tags than they have room in their freezers for. And a lot of those guys will either say, all right, I'm going to go out and I'm going to harvest that deer, but I'm going to make sure that I donate all the meat to, you know, a homeless shelter, or a food bank or somebody that can use it. Or B, I'm just not going to go out and fill that tag for the simple fact that if I can't use the meat, if my family's not going to consume it, I'm not going to go out and, and make a wasteful harvest. And I got a buddy that goes down uh, commercial sport fishing down in Florida like several times a year. And I just see it through Instagram. And he recently just went on a trip and he finished up his day with 50 pounds of processed fish meat 
on the dock at the end of the day. And I was just, you know, one of his friends posted like, yeah, dude, I want some of that. And he's like, if I can figure out how to get it home in two days. And I was like, what, why did you take 50 pounds of fish? If you didn't even know if you had a way to get it home, let alone like, what are you going to do with 50 pounds of fish? And when you're going to go back in a couple of months, like, I love this dude, you know, sorry if you're listening, but I looked at that and I was like, man, that's a, that, and quite frankly, it may have been somebody that just didn't look at, you know, the guy at the dock at the, the commercial charter and say like, Hey man, I don't need to keep everything we catch today. Like I want to go home with enough to feed my family tonight, but we don't need to have a dock full of fish for me to feel like today was a good day. I just want to boat a bunch of fish. You know, I've never been that kind of fishing, so I don't know if that's even like an option, but it, it seemed crazy that he had these mountains of, of processed fish that he had no idea what he was going to do with. Yeah. That's like a, it's, it's a weird thing for, especially in sport fishing. I think it, it permeates a lot more over there that, you know, they, they want to just catch as many fish as they possibly can. Cause that's just how sport fishing in the ocean has always been done. And, you know, most of those people, you know, they're, they're catching keep people, you know, I get it. Nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong with keeping fish at the end of the day. There's nothing wrong with it. But yeah, whenever you have that much fish, you're like, I don't know what the hell I'm going to do with this. Well, throw a few back. It's okay. You're not, you're not hurting anyone. If the captain's feelings are hurt that you're throwing fish back, that's probably something pick you should probably captain. have to talk with the captain. Yeah. Yeah. Pick a different captain. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Um, so I want to kind of slide from there. I mean, one of your other kind of big crusades is don't fish reds, right? Don't tread reds. Uh, for those of, you know, the, the folks that are out there that maybe aren't as versed in fly fishing as, as yourself or even myself, that's only been in it for a couple of years. Uh, you know, you posted a photo recently that I was like, Oh snap, that's what a red looks like. Because in Missouri, you know, we don't have the same kind of riverbeds that you've got out West. And so when our, our trout are making reds and we'll kind of explain what that is here in a second, it's not anywhere near as obvious as what you showed in that photo. Maybe that was a really clear photo. Um, but talked a little bit about what a red is and why you're passionate about why people shouldn't be fishing them. Yeah, it's a part, it's normally in a riffle or at the end of, it's basically at the end head or riffle pool, um, where a fish is making its place to spawn. And a lot of times it's in an oval shape, um, out here out West. It's mostly an oval shape. It's very distinctly discolored. It's normally clean. It's like a gravelly bottom. One of the cool things that that particular spot that you're talking about is you could see a bunch of failed reds where a fish would go, they'd make like a quarter of a one and they'd figure out, Oh, I don't like that. And they'd move to the next one That's and cool. move to the next spot, which is super cool. Um, I wish I would have taken a picture of that. Cause you know, there's something you said like, Hey, it looks like a red, but it might not be a red, but and all for all intents and purposes, you know, just pretend it's all red yeah. just to be safe. Yeah. And, Basically, you know, don't try, don't walk on them. You know, that's what don't try on the red means. Um, don't walk on them because what you're going to do is you're going to crush the eggs. That next generation of fish will be gone. If that's the case, uh, if you disturb them, you know, you never know what's going to happen. Uh, and a lot of people, um, here in out West and back East to an extent, it was, it used to be very acceptable to fish a red in the six, the seventies and eighties. It was very acceptable. Talked to my dad about it. He's like, yeah, dude, that's how we caught all of our big fish back in the day. And I was like, yeah, like, you know, and he was like, yeah. And then during the nineties, the two thousands, we noticed all of our big fish were gone. Yeah. What happened? And that's kind of, that's kind of why it is the way it is now is like, there's a lot more consciousness towards fishing reds is because that's your next generation. And if you pull a big fish off of that red, yeah, it's cool. You got your picture for yourself, but for every other angle that fishes that spot, you just screwed them for a year or two years or t a decade. You know, there's plenty of rivers that are like that where a fish has been yanked off a red, you know, and multiple fish. We see that with steelhead um, all the time here where people just snag them off a red, floss them off a red, whatever. And they're like, okay, well, you know, we're not going to see this fish now. 
Yeah. Yeah. It was, I was really, really lucky in, and if any of you guys haven't seen it, if you're out there listening, uh, I did a video on planting wild brown trout from Utah into a Missouri watershed, uh, Westover Farms, this private park here in, in Missouri. Um, but they were given um, an exemption. So you're not allowed to plant, obviously, any, you know, fish of any kind in our watersheds whatsoever, unless you're granted permission specifically from the Missouri Department of Conservation. Our Gateway Trout Unlimited chapter worked with the MDC for quite some time along with this private park and basically said, hey, we don't think that this system's going to work, but if you can get someone to give you private water to test it and prove that the system works, then maybe we'll expand it to some other you know, watersheds and some other fisheries. And so the idea was to try and help wild brown trout survive better in you know, Missouri watersheds. And so we used the Dave, uh, Dave Whitlock Vibbert egg boxes, and we got 30,000 wild brown trout eggs, and we went and dug our own reds, and we filled all these crates in with you know, the eggs and then the boxes and then gravel. And you really got to see kind of very close up what a fish does in order to plant its eggs where it puts them how tenuous that could be and how easy it would be for that to be disrupted and for all the eggs to get screwed over, die, or get eaten by other animals that are down there. Uh, And then when we went back a month later to check, you know, on the progress, we see these itty-bitty little tiny fish, and we would dump the crates out, and these little fry would come swimming out, and then all of a sudden they would just sink to the bottom of our little box right down into the gravel. And you would start to realize, like, oh, that's how trout that's how they're born. That's where they live. They sit down in the gravel and they, they hide until they're big enough to head out into some more of the main water. And then they're probably still going to get eaten and only a few of them are going to survive. But it really gave me an understanding of how a red works, what fish are doing, where they're putting their eggs, how difficult it is for them to survive. So yeah, if we go trouncing through, you know, these very delicate ecosystems with a very select number of eggs, they don't stand a chance. I mean, we were putting all of the variables into the absolute optimal scenario and we're still not sure if it's going to work. So I completely understand, you know, how did that become such a hot button topic for you or where did you get so, you know, into that particular part of, of conservation? Yeah. So for me, it was personal reasons. There's a certain river out here that has, that's known for having people going out there and fishing brown trout on reds. And this particular river has very nice fish in it. Um, you get the, get the fish from for nine months out of the year. I avoid it for three months out of the year. And I'm like, Hey, they're doing their thing. Let them do their thing. I've always been a big advocate to close that particular river during that time, because it is a trophy trophy river. And I see people out there going out there all the time in November, um, late October, early November. I'll, I'll go out there. I count reds because I, I, like you, I find them very interesting. Yeah. And, uh, and the other thing, the second part of that is too, is you get to see where all the big fish are. So then in, in February, when you go back or January, when you go back, when they're done spawning, you kind of know where the big fish are yeah. and where to find them. So after they're done, you know, whether or not people find that ethical or not, you know, whatever but you know typically if you give them a month and a half after they spawn i'd say they're, they're pretty good to go yeah. at least in my experience um and yeah that that is one thing like that's that's kind of where i saw it because i noticed and we could talk about this off air too is like the trout population was very good going up big fish a lot of them and now this year it's just it's awful it's your you got a cookie cutter 12 to 14 inch brown trout that quite frankly, like, I don't know if they're going to get bigger. You know, I'm not trying to be like, you know, Debbie Downer over here, but it does worry me because I mean, these fish don't see, they don't get to just relax and do their thing all year. There's someone on them just trying to catch them. And when you're chasing a fish that's on a red, it's, it's not fair chase. 
the fish is going to take a big streamer over the red because it's protecting its red. That's the matter. That's just how it is. And, you know, it's not fair. And you'll see a lot of people on Instagram, especially in October and November, you'll just see these massive giant kiped up buck browns and you're like, okay, that's a cool fish. And you'll see, you know, their fins are worn down and they look like shit and they look like they've been through hell. You're like, okay, that was pulled off a of red because people are like, Oh, I fished in pre-spawn. I'm like, they're not going to get that beat up in pre-spawn. Right. You know, they're not going to be sitting right below a riffle and look like that. And, and a lot, unless you have, I mean, I'm sure there's exceptions, you know, I'm not claiming to be like, Oh, it, it's always that way. But for a lot of times you're like, Hmm, that, that was probably a red. Yeah, it, it's fascinating to me uh, the amount of biology that you learn when you get into fishing. Um, I mean, I've been in backpacking and hiking and camping and all that kind of stuff for quite some time now. I mean, I grew up in it, and then I took a break when I was out, you know, playing football and chasing girls and doing the whole college thing. And then when that finished, I kind of got a, a kickstart back into the outdoor scene and got really back into backpacking a lot and then have more recently got into fly fishing. And it's literally one of those things where looking back, I mean, I hated the sciences when I was in high school, but if I knew that being a biologist meant all of these jobs were open later on in life, I might have taken the sciences and biology a little bit more, more seriously. Uh, you know, no fault to my school or anything. They did a great job, but it was just one of those things where like we didn't have that kind of exposure. Um, I think that fly fishing naturally, if you really let yourself get into like the, the depths of it, right. I mean, I hate to use the pun depths, but if you really let yourself go there, like you can really get into understanding what makes a fishery tick, what makes watersheds go and the, the, uh, the perilous nature that they are all susceptible to. I mean, you know, you're seeing it with the, the wild sea bass population out on the East Coast is is struggling right now. If you just watch the fly fishing film tour, um, you know, there's there's watersheds that are in danger all over the place, but then there are others that are just absolutely thriving and crushing. Um, you know, I've always been of the belief that, like, the more you learn, the better off you're going to be. Do you think that there's a big population out there that just doesn't give a shit and they're like, screw you guys, you know, your, your conservation ideas are stupid and we're just going to keep doing what we do. And can those people be reached? Or do you just like focus on the 60% of the people that are logical and normal and can be reached? There are definitely people out there who can't be reached. I would say it's, it's not even, it's a very small minority that don't care about conservation. I think most people, that's one of those things when you talk about politics and things like that, regardless of what side of the aisle you are, if you're a fly fisherman, you want to see the best for your waterway. That's just how it is. I, I think that's one thing that like, you know, we can all, anyone from any walk of life that's a fly fisherman can say, I care about my waterway. I care about my fish. I want to see them succeed. So either my kids, my grandkids, my great grandkids can catch the same type of fish that I caught when I was growing up. Yeah. And the same, same can be said for our, our forefathers. And we see some people who just don't give a shit. They're in it for themselves. They, they could care less. And those people, you know, unfortunately, I think some, a lot of times their minds can't be changed, but there are definitely ones out there who are like, Oh, I didn't think about that. I wish I would have thought about that. And you know, they change their behavior now instead of doing more damage. Now they're promoting, you know, good practices. And I think that that is something I like to focus on when I'm talking to people, you know, with tailing gloves, fishing on reds. I'm like, Hey, most of the time, unless it's super egregious, I'm reaching out to that person saying, Hey dude, like, come on. That that's just, that's just awful. Like, you know, 
you know, like, let, let's talk about this. Here's your science, you know, let's talk. Sometimes that's met with a very good response of, oh, I didn't know that. Sorry. Like, I'm going to be more conscious of this. Thank you for this, bringing this to my attention. There's a lot of other people out there who are like, no, this is how I've done it my whole life. I'm not going to change. I'm like, right. okay. And then some people, you know, there's the other minority who is like, says some really nasty stuff. And that's when you normally see them on my story. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I will say like one of the things that we talked a little bit about, about offline that I really appreciate about you is that you always do lead with like, hey, you know, this is what I think is going on. Like, you know, you, you've made a post about, uh, you know, somebody's made a post about, uh, you know, they, they've posted the same fish with three different shirts. And you've been like, hey, this probably isn't the greatest idea. What are your thoughts on this? Like, should you be doing this? If they meet you with large aggression, then you've come back and been like, all right, let's have this public conversation. Let's get after it. But I think the vast majority of the time, you know, I mean, I would say almost exclusively, you're meeting people with a very open arms like, hey, this is what I believe. Let's have this conversation. If you can be civil, I can be civil. Let's all try and kind of make this a better place. So I I really do appreciate that about you and your approach. And I I think that maybe probably goes less noticed than it should be um, because, you know, I know sometimes things get a little inflammatory, uh, but I think the vast majority, I mean, I would say probably 90% of your encounters are all really good conversations and, and, you know, good people just having good dialogue. Yeah. And there's a lot of, you know, I, that's the thing too, is a lot of that's not seen. Yeah. Unfortunately, you know, people just assume me as like being just an asshole to everyone and like, Oh, like I'm just gonna be a dick to everyone. No, it's, you know, I've had conversations with 99.9% of people. Occasionally, like, if I see something egregious, example, if I see a red fishing a guide, no, I'm not, I, I'll text, I'll, that's it, I'll call them out because, like, dude, you're a guide. You know better. If I know for a fact that person knows better, I'm going to say something. You know, I'm going to let people know, like, hey, this is some, this person, you know, here's what they did. They're a professional in this industry. You know, what what's up? These people need to be held accountable. Yeah. And there's something to be said about accountability in fly fishing because there's not a whole lot of it. Because what happens is that a lot of these people, I shouldn't even say these people, it's just it's a very small minority of of anglers and conventional fly, whatever, tankara, whatever you want to call them. You know, that they, they just they just don't care or they're like, hey, I'm in it for the likes, you know, do whatever it do whatever it takes. And those are the people that I'm like, man, I hope that I'm able to raise awareness. These are people that shouldn't be followed and treated as, um, as deities and things like that within the industry. I mean, we see that I won't say names, but you know, there's the guy who red raped a lot of fish in Utah illegally in a closed section in a raft, didn't have a fishing license, didn't have life, like stuff like that. And he's got a lot of followers and you look at him and you're like, dude, what the hell? Like you're a guide, you're, you're doing all this stuff. You look at, uh, I don't, I'm not afraid to say to say Montana wild when they did the thing with the bull trout where they would cut, caught the bull trout in an area where they're endangered and they're supposed to be put immediately back in the water, put it in the net. They didn't like the shot they got for their, for their film. They threw it back in the water with the hook on the hook in its mouth again and brought it back in so they could get a better shot. Like stuff like that. Like, like who, who thinks that's okay. Right. And it, at the end of the day, it's all about, it's all for likes and it's right. all about, I want to be popular. Yeah, it's, it's gotta be, you know, I mean, as somebody that couldn't consider, I don't want to consider myself an influencer, right? Cause I don't think I influence anybody, but I try to be a little bit entertaining and a little bit educational when I can be. And I think it's, it's really gotta be difficult. You know, one of the things that I've been very fortunate about and lucky with is that I have zero desire to make any money on outdoors podcast until I deserve to make money. And I think I've got to put in an awful lot of time building my expertise and educating people and entertaining people before I expect to make any money and before I try to make any money. And I think there's a lot of people out there that are really impatient 
and want to use whatever vehicle, whatever means, whatever, you know, thing that they can to become influential, become, you know, someone that, that can command money or ads or deals or sell CBD or whatever the hell it is that they're trying to sling these days. Um, you know, how is it that people can kind of, I mean, is it just a personality thing that there's some people are just going to say, screw you guys, we don't care. We're going to go after it and get what we can. Or is there a way to kind of be, uh, on the right side of things and try and kind of guide people into the the right space? Or is it, is it just Instagram is busy right now and it's going to be tough to do it right? Tough question. Yeah, it is a really tough question. So I mean, I, 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 I always loop back to my dad for a lot of this kind of stuff because he's, he's been around for like the movie whenever it runs through, it came through and saw all these people start fly fishing. And then you got to the early two thousands where forums were a huge thing and all the spots got burned on forums. And then Facebook came around and everyone's bringing up Facebook. And now a lot of that energy is transferred to Instagram. And unfortunately with the platform that Instagram is and what people view fly fishing now is it, it hurts a lot of fisheries and it hurts a lot of people. And it turns into, I want to be cool. I'm going to fly fish. Yeah. Whether or not, I mean, is it cool to fly fish? Hell yeah, it is. It is super cool to fly fish. Don't get me wrong. That's why I do it. Um, I love it because I get to go out there. I get to do cool stuff. Yeah, so I think, yeah. Do I think getting a thousand likes on a picture is cool? Not really. That that's where, you know, it's like I said, it's like that witness me culture. Yeah. Um, you'll see a lot of these guides nowadays who are trying to like, there's no shortcuts. There just aren't. You're going to get called on your shit. The people who actually make decisions within the fly fishing community and the industry see right through that. Yeah. You can, you can fool a hundred thousand people into thinking that you are the best angler in the world. At the end of the day, the guy with 1000 followers who runs some of these bigger brands and, you know, uh, and I'm friends with quite a few of them. They're like, dude, we see through that stuff. We vet that kind of stuff. You'll never see someone like that in our brand. There's a reason why the people that they pick are the people they pick. And like in that, in that article that just came out on uh, angling trade, some, one of the influencers who was a little bit younger than me, said like, Oh, I'm just like blacklisted. I can't, I can't get a deal from anyone. It's because you took a shortcut to the top Yeah, for sure. And there's a reason people who are within these big brands, they see that and they don't want to be associated with that because they know that doesn't garner any respect. It's all about paying your dues and working your way to the top and grinding your way to the top. No one wants to see you, you know, I don't want to say specific no, no, no. I mean, things I, that I, they do, but I, I understand because like one of the things yeah. that I know that I've seen similar anglers uh, say is, you know, well, oh, it's really tough for me to make money, you know, as a guide. And I'm like, well, yeah, you're a fly fishing guide. Like that's not a high paying job until you're at the pinnacle of the career. It's kind of like being a teacher. You do it for the passion of the job, not for the money. There are a certain select few that figure out a way to make like really good money as a fly fishing guide. But if you're five years into your guiding career and you're not making like crazy money, guess what? That's the job. Like that's, that's what you chose to do for your career. And that's kind of what you're signing up for. I mean, I'm not saying like all fly fishing guides should be poor, but you're not signing up to be the CEO of Apple, right? Like there's a difference in the expectations of what you should have. And as a guide, in my opinion, like, yeah, that's a long, slow build of getting expertise, building a clientele, getting referrals, taking care of your clients, doing right by the river, doing right by the outfitters and everybody else that's feeding the industry. So 
you know, I, I think that there's just way too many people. And this is one thing that I've been really lucky that I have a day job that pays my bills. So outdoors podcast doesn't have to be more than it needs to be as it organically grows. Uh, I think a lot of people are just really impatient and want to be someone really important way before they deserve to be so. Uh, and, you know, I think Instagram and some of the other social media channels kind of feed that machine, right? Because we're constantly bombarded with everybody else, like fishing cooler rivers and doing cooler shit. You know I mean? Like I know when I see some of the stuff that you've posted, uh, not on your other, you know, on your other channel, I'm like, Oh snap, I want to catch that fish. Uh, so it, it does put pressure on people to be bigger, more impressive, cooler than they are. But at the same time, it's like, guys, if we if we put the focus on who we are and not what's going on with the fish and what's going on with these waterways, then we're not going to have those areas to pursue in the future. And they are really delicate, and we have to have a conservation mindset towards it. Would you, would you agree? Yeah, I would 100% agree with that. When it comes to, like, guides and things like that, I mean, I have so many friends that are guides, and it's too many to count. I could name a thousand of them and not a single one of them would mind me saying their name on this podcast. So I'm not going to say them because it, uh, we would just hear yeah. me telling you a story about every single guide I know. Yeah. And the thing is with, you know, like you said, guiding is not a glorious job. At the end of the day, you're showing someone. And most of the time it's like, like Kevin and Stacy yeah. from Denver, Colorado, who have fished two times in their life and they just want to have a good time. Cast for you know, shit, but want to go out and have a good it, time. Exactly. And those, you know, that, that's a lot of the, that's a lot of those clientele. And when you're, it's like, do you, okay, you want to be an expert in the industry, but you've only been guiding for five years. Would you try to be a CEO of a company with five years experience at like a marketing level or something like that? And then, and then expect that job to be handed to you. It's the same, the same concept. And don't get me wrong. There are people who who climb the ladder faster. We see that all the time within business and things. You'll see these people who are like, they're 25 years old. They've got their own business. They're making a million bucks a year, things like that. Those are rare. Like that's not a normal occurrence. Unfortunately, with social media, we see that now kind of going into fly fishing. Like you'll see these younger people shooting straight to the top and you're kind of like, wow, what, what did they do? I want to be like that. So you're going to do whatever it takes to become that person. Yeah. And what that, you know, we get into ethics, we get into shady practices, you know, what you're doing at trade shows, things like that. That That's what it comes down to. And there's yeah. no shortcut to the top. Everyone's going to see through that eventually. And your authenticity is going to be questioned. Yeah, I, I think that's true. And I mean, I think one of the things that and I, I appreciate that, you know, I mean, I, we're not going to mention it, but I know that you're involved in some nonprofits and you do things to kind of give back to the community. I think one thing that, you know, if you're a new angler, if you're someone that's getting into fly fishing and, you know, you, you did it because you saw it on Instagram and you thought it was cool and you want to, you want to be a part of the industry, more power to you. Uh, Cheers. Go out and get yourself a rod. Join me on the river. Let's go have a good time. But volunteer for some organizations, make sure that you're in it for the right causes, because those things will inform you. Like if you're having fun at those types of events, then you're probably in it for the right thing. If you're finding yourself like really kind of just pulling your teeth and wanting to like pull your fingernails out, that's this pro you're probably not in it for the right reason. You're probably just in it to like chase. Right. And if you can't leave your phone in the car and go out and fish for a day, or if you can't go out by yourself and do it where nobody else is ever going to know that you were there and that you enjoyed the day, then you're probably not in it for the right reasons. Um, so, you know, again, I'm not going to tell you what to do with your life and whether you can fish or whether you can't, but, uh, you know, there's lots of things to do in life. And if you can't find something that you just truly enjoy without getting clout or without getting, you know, likes, 
it's probably going to be a hollow pursuit and you're going to move on from it pretty quickly. So get the hell out of our rivers and streams and stay off of our <laughs> fish. So that's my message for the day. Um, so let me kind of go to some more lighthearted stuff to conclude and we'll finish this thing up in the next you know few minutes. So uh, tell me about some gear that you love. Tell me about some brands that you're super into, some of the stuff that uh, you kind of drool over at the store or some of the stuff that you've really enjoyed having in your personal collection. Yeah, so right now, um, my main rig is a Sage X 9'5 weight with an Orvis Batten kill on it that is pretty much the rod I use everywhere. Uh, and I understand that not everyone can afford a $1,000 fly rod. I was very lucky. I got it used for a very good deal um, through a Facebook marketplace. So one one of my tips, too, is you know if you're wanting some high-end gear and you're like, man, I don't have $1,000 to spend at a fly shop today, but you want to test something out, you know, get something that's a season or two old and see if you like that. Then take the next step, go to a fly shop, cast some stuff, see if you like it, go from there. And there's nothing wrong with fishing budget rods. I will say it a million times. I fish echo bases like it's going out style. I have five of them right now and a variety of different weights that I, I still fish to this day. They're $89 rods. They don't make them anymore. They have the echo lift. And they're awesome. And I think that those rods are like one of the best. Yeah, you see, you have an echo base. You see, everyone's got echo bases. They're an awesome rod. They're yeah. the best beginner rod. You can, my buddy ran his over the car. Like, you can you can do anything with them. Like, and I know Echo makes a quality product. It's not going to break the bank. Yeah, they got like the Streamer X. I think the, the Lago series, stuff like that. they're expensive. Yeah, if you like those, go for it. But, you know, you don't need to have a Sage X and Orvis Helios. And uh, I was just on a live stream the other day with a guy named Adam. His name's Soulfinger on Instagram. And he said, at the end of the day, the best fly rod is the rod that's in your hand at the time you're trying to catch fish. Whether or not, you know, you really like, man, I really like a Helios 3, Sage X isn't for me, or a Winston Air isn't for me, whatever. You know, that doesn't matter. At, at some point, yeah, if you have some money, yeah, do it. And take a look. And maybe, you know, instead of being able to cast, 30 feet accurate, you're going to be able to cast 33 feet more accurately. Yeah, like, yeah. that's just what it is when, when at you're the end of the first day. first getting going, one of the things that I think is really important for new anglers, at least that's something that I've learned, is like you're going to catch the majority of your fish inside of 30 feet. You're yeah. not going to be bombing these casts on, you know, these giant western waters out of a drift boat unless you're just super rich and hiring, you know, guides all the time. And, like, if you've got your own boat, guess what? You're going to be rowing most of the time. So, you know, unless you are just super loaded and you're going to be out with guides all the time, you're probably going to be fishing relatively small water and you're going to be fishing relatively close to you. So think more about understanding water and how to get a fly to move accurately versus casting a million feet, which is what everybody thinks about the you know cost of a rod with more than anything else. It's probably more of a mending thing as you get more into it. But for the very beginning, you're never going to be limited by your rod or your reel or your line. You're not going to be good enough to be limited by those things. It's more important of like, how do you approach a stream? Do you know where to put your fly? Can you actually get it to drift right or strip right or, you know, float right once you've put it where it's supposed to be? And once it's there, do you know what to do if a fish actually grabs it? So like you, 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 you spend way more time learning that stuff early on, like how to keep your line away from your feet uh, yeah. than you do worrying about whether your rod's got that perfect, you know, fast action and you've got that exact 33-foot cast where you're dead accurate. I agree with you there. Yeah, and a lot of people, there's the, one of the, my biggest things I'll tell every single person is you can have, you have a $10,000 setup, but if you only spend two days in the water, you're not going to become a very good fly fisherman. Hell yeah. yeah there's, there's no... 
There's no substitute for time on the water. Every, I think any respectful fly fisherman will tell you that. Yeah, some like reps might be, well, dude, like this one, you're going to be able to learn faster and things like that. Sure, that might be the case for, you know, nine out of 10 people, but you might be that one out of 10 who's like, dude, this does nothing for me. You know, and you always have to keep that in mind. And the fact is, be on the water, be willing to learn, be okay getting skunked. I get skunked still. I go steelheading. It sucks. You're out there 14 hours, not catching shit. I went to pyramid. I didn't catch shit for 15 hours or something like that. That was on the water. I was like, this is awful. I'm ready to go back to the cabin, drink beer, eat some food, stuff like that. You know, and there's just, just no time. There's no, there's no substitute for that. Yeah. You can take all the class you want. You can cast in your backyard as much as you want, which I encourage, but at some point you're going to reach the limit of being able to actually do anything and catch a fish. Yeah. So. I mean, you know, one of the things that there's a, a great little place that I've gone and, and one of the guys that kind of, um, has, has helped me quite a bit has helped me find some just places where he knows there's going to be fish and just wants to see me be successful. And it's just taken me some time to like, okay, if I throw my dry fly over there, manage where it's actually going after I've thrown it to get it to go to the place where I know the fish actually is, right? Because you can't throw a fly directly on top of a fish. If the water's flying past it, you got to throw it five, six feet in front of it and let it drift past. And, you know, if you're dry fly fishing for all the noobs out there, Um, and so learning to control that thing through that little riffle or, or around that little rock or something like that has been infinitely more productive for me than casting a million feet and trying to just figure out like, where is a trout going to be in a piece of water has been the biggest lesson that I've had to learn as I go lots of different places to fish. And to your, to your point, like fishing more, go to more places, try different places, you'll start to figure out what looks fishy and where you be. Oh, there's definitely fish in there. Uh, and then all of a sudden, wham, what do you know? You're, you're pulling stuff out of there. So I know you've got some trips coming up with some other, you know, social media account uh, folks, but, but you know, you've been to Pyramid, you've been to some of the places that we all dream about in the Midwest, uh, out West. You know, what are some of the things that are really high on your list as far as like dream locations where you want to go fish and what are some species that you really want to target? So I really want to go up to Canada for steelhead just because there's just so many more of them up there. And we don't have them in Idaho. I've caught a few here. Uh, it, it's a, it's a drip. You gotta, you gotta really put it in there. It's not that I want it to be easier. Yeah. It's just the fact of the matter is it's a lot harder to swing a fish in Idaho than it is in uh, Canada. That's kind of one of those things I want to do. Um, I want to do golden trout this year which we have a few spots that I hear that we can do that, but they're way out there in the middle of nowhere. Stuff that you would like to do where you're, you're packing in, you know, 15 miles to go mm-hmm. to this little lake that has massive goldens in it. And then I'm also, you know, saltwater will be a thing here. I'm hopefully going, you know, down, down uh, to Louisiana, Bahamas, Fort Lauderdale here soon. I also, you know, one of my other things too, is I kind of want to go back home and spend a little bit more time on the water I grew up on and get to know that. I remember it a little bit yeah. more before it's maybe gone because over there, it's just, God knows what's going on over there. My dad says it's awful. So I don't know what that actually means, but you know, I, I, I want to do that. Um, I want to fish Montana. I haven't got a chance really to fish it at all. Uh, there's a few people up there that I'm good friends with that I'm going to be fishing with hopefully this summer over there. Um, one of my big things this year that I'm going to be trying to do is uh, catch a sturgeon on the fly, which is going to be interesting. Um, we have a few places here that are very well kept that I might be able to do something like that. So I'm looking forward to doing that and seeing if I can get one of those, you know, like a hundred pound sturgeon on fly. That'd be pretty cool. That's the closest thing we got to saltwater in Idaho. So. Yeah, that's pretty sick. I mean, a hundred pound yeah. fish 
whatever species you're talking about is a big ass fish. Um, exactly. What are some of the accounts? We'll kind of conclude with this. What are some of the accounts that you interact with the most? Not necessarily in uh, you know the conversations, but in supporting each other and kind of promoting each other. What are some of the other accounts that are like yours that you really really like? Yeah. So if you're really in the fly tying, uh, the real dirty loaf, Chris, he's awesome. I talk to him all the time. He's one of the most genuine dudes out there. He'll shoot straight with you. He'll give you, he talks to probably more people than I talk to because he has, has a little bit bigger of a following. And I mean, he ties amazing flies. He's, he's great. He's great at what he does. Um, FFBI, uh, they're really cool. Uh, unfortunately they're the biggest one probably out there right now. So they get hammered with messages. So, you know, I get to talk to those guys every once in a while, those guys and gals, I should say, but, um, there's, you know, there's all kinds of people. I mean, I'm big into like photography, uh, when it comes to looking at stuff. So I really like, um, Brian Gregson's stuff, uh, Yako Lucas, uh, fly fishing nation, Marina Gibson. Those are all great people. Um, to look at those are bigger accounts. I don't get to interact with them very often, but they're from my understanding also awesome people. I've never heard a complaint about them. Um, when it comes to local Idaho guys, I'm trying to think who we have here. That's like super cool that I get to deal with all the time that like people would know. Um, I mean, obviously like there's the, the crazy old dudes out on Henry's fork that are awesome. I can't remember all their names off the top of their head. Um, but yeah, those are all guys who are like super important. I think to the industry and that are, you know, they're, they're very important to know who they are and they maybe don't get as much, um, attention as they should. You know, there's people up in Canada. Like if you look at like Paula Shear stuff, she's really cool. Um, she does steelheading. She's like, if I were going to go steelheading right now, I'd want to fish the same water she's on because she awesome. just seems to do really good at it. Um, and maybe she doesn't catch as many as what she used to. I haven't seen a lot. She's caught some really nice rainbows lately that I've seen. Um, uh, another like big one, if you're in the pyramid, Momo, the meat man, he's a really cool dude. Catches a lot of fish. Chris, Chris Nicola. Uh, I think that's how you say his last name. He's really cool. He's an awesome dude. Just, if you want to just talk to someone about pyramid, go talk to Chris, book a trip with him. He's awesome. Um, when you're looking like other places, um, destinations like that, I want to go still, but they're kind of not lower on the lower on the bucket list, but I can do that here is, uh, you know, on the San Juan James Garrison, Bob Trout. He's awesome. Yep. Um, over in Colorado, I really want to fish with a uh, stash wax, Chris Petzl, 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 I don't know how to say his last name, but Chris, sorry if you listen to this. I don't know how to say your last name, dude. Um, he's awesome. He makes like awesome merch. Yeah. Like if you, if you like his, you, most people like his stuff. So yeah, I like his stuff. Yeah. That's cool. Well, those are all, I mean, fantastic accounts. I follow a bunch of them and I mean, I've, I've got some of the same destinations in mind. I'm still super new into this whole thing. So I'm looking just like. It's just, it's mind blowing all the different options and places to go. And I think one of the things that that's gotten a little bit overwhelming for me, and I need to just kind of like dial it back is it just seems so daunting of like, you know, if you're from the Midwest, we have like our little streams, our rivers where we're, where I'm used to fishing in, in Missouri. And the idea of just like getting on my RV and heading out West and then knowing where to start or where I'm not going to piss people off by showing up or how to get everything that I, you know, like all that kind of stuff we'll slowly evolve into it and get, you know, figured out by visiting different outfitters and different fly shops and stuff and getting to know people across the country. So I'm looking forward to getting to know it, but it does seem a little daunting. Um, because I, I mean, I've just talked to buddies that are like guides out West and they're like, dude, if you showed up at my boat ramp in the morning, we got 90 guides that are hitting the water. Good luck finding yourself in the middle of that pile. 
And I was like, yeah. good call. Thanks. Good to know. Uh, yeah. So trying to find the places that are like approachable and I'm not pissing people off and have good access without burning spots and all that kind of stuff, I think is, you know, a journey that will go down over the next couple of years. And I think it'll be, uh, you know, obviously I'll talk to you a little bit about it offline and pick some of your less desirable spots that you're willing to share with me. And we'll go fishing sometime when I'm out in Boise. Yeah, for sure. No, you got to come out sometime. It's awesome out here. We're starting to finally pick up uh, runoff starting to happen. Have, Half decent water, it looks like, this year. So it'll be probably a good year out here. I mean, you can't go wrong with any part of Idaho except southwestern Idaho. Don't come here. We don't have any fish. They're all small. They're all they're all dinky. There's nothing out here to look at, just a bunch of 12-inch stocked fish. Like, go, you can go fish those in Colorado. Go fish, like, the frying pan or something yeah, like that. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely. There's not, nothing, good in, <laughs> nothing good in southwest Idaho. Yeah. Um, well, purest man, I appreciate your time. This was super fun. I hope we get to do more episodes in the future. Uh, we're definitely going to link all the people that you talked about below in the description in, uh, the blog post. So check it out at outdoorspodcast.com. I'll have links to all of purists accounts and all the kind of fun stuff that we talked about tonight. So thanks so much for joining me, man. I really had a good time. Yeah, of course. Anytime. And if you want me back on, just let me know. I'm always available. You're the best man. Thanks.